morning. Uh, I shared with first service that I, uh, we, we finished up the Sermon on the Mount last week, and, and for the last three plus years, um, that has in many ways been kind of the answer to the question for me every time when Ben says, hey, uh, you're up, or I need you to preach this day. Uh, it, it's kind of been nice to know where I'm going uh, for going on three years. Um, and so for the first time in a while, I, I had to figure out what I was going to do. And uh, I, I, where I landed, I was telling Pastor this morning, is it's actually something that has been on my mind for quite a while. Uh, and it's been on my heart for quite a while, and I wasn't really sure when the right time for it was. And so, um, as I, I kind of look out at and interact with some of the things going on around us, I, I think it's, it's time for it. Um, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, much of what Jesus discusses has implications about a, a kingdom that is to come, but also can be experienced in this life. Um, and, and it's evident as we look at the sermon, that there are very clear things that have to do with Christian living and Christian life. Um, but the other thing that becomes evident as you look at the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus says a lot about um, turning the other cheek and loving, loving your enemy. And that is that just because we believe in God and we believe in Jesus, it does not mean that we're going to have it made on easy street. Life does not just become easy for us because we believe in Jesus. Um, sometimes... We believe in God, but the world around us seems so backwards, and things don't make sense, and when we try to make an attempt at making sense of it, uh, we're met with loss, and we end up more frustrated than we were at the beginning. So what we're going to be transitioning into uh, is, is something wholly different than the Sermon on the Mount, um, where the Sermon on the Mount is kind of this popular section of Scripture uh, it's a pretty well-known section. There's, there's good parts in there where people really gravitate towards the Beatitudes, love your neighbor, um, the greatest hits of that. What we're going to be looking at is in many ways um, kind of negative and I think less talked about. We're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Ecclesiastes, uh, I, I joked with a friend this week that Ecclesiastes is kind of that one of the dusty corners of our Bible sometimes. Uh, if you go to Psalms in the middle and then go a couple books to the right, you'll find Ecclesiastes right after Proverbs. Uh, and, and as you turn there, I want to give you a bit of context and, and a little bit of why, why are we doing Ecclesiastes? If it is negative, what is, what is the point of this? Um, uh, so first, why are we doing it? Um, it's one of those books that doesn't really go on many people's top five lists. If you, if you look up sermons on the book of Matthew, it's endless. I mean, there's, there's countless sermons on Matthew. But when you look up sermons on Ecclesiastes, they're out there. Uh, and, and there's a few of them. Um, but you, you, can, you can hit the bottom of that list within time. Uh, it doesn't take too long. And so, there's, I'm more nervous this morning than I normally am because I am a bit apprehensive because of what Ecclesiastes does. Um, it is a fairly negative book. Oftentimes, when we turn 
to our Bibles, we're looking for answers, we're looking for guidance, we're looking for God's Word to tell us how to live, to give us answers about what the right thing to do is. And Ecclesiastes doesn't really do that. It actually uh, intends to leave us with more questions, more uncertainty, uh, and, and gives us some tension that we maybe didn't even start our search with. Uh, and so that is part of my apprehension because sometimes life is already uncertain enough. Um, we, we already have bad things happening and sometimes it's nice to have a break from it. But I think the message of Ecclesiastes is necessary for today. Uh, and then the other, the other part of why are we doing this is, is partially selfish on my end is I, I absolutely love the book of Ecclesiastes. I, I am kind of a naturally uh, skeptical person. I'm a kind of glass half empty, um, or there's probably a crack in the glass anyway, so why even put water in it? Um, and it's kind of how I'm wired up. I, I deal with that through humor, so um, if, if I'm cracking jokes, it's probably because that's my way of dealing with this naturally skeptical outlook. In this sense, Ecclesiastes has really kind of reached me. Um, and I know I'm not supposed to pick favorites, but it, it's top five books of the Bible for me. Um, Ecclesiastes became incredibly impactful in my life when I uh, entered college. Um, I had left home in many ways for the first time in my life. I was on my own, uh, apart from my parents. Um, I had to figure out a bit about who I was, a bit about what I was going to do. Um, and I know this time of year there's lots of seniors graduating and moving into those parts of their life. And so a lot of those uncertainties and feelings that you have or will have, um, I, I was feeling it in a very real way. I'm from the middle of nowhere in Montana, um, in Sims, Montana. Uh, it's out there. If you, if you type it in on Google Maps and you just kind of keep scrolling in, uh, there's, I promise there's a school out there. Uh, but that's where I grew up in that area, and I moved to Salem, Oregon, and my roommate was from big city Southern California, so I had, I had culture shock first class. Um, and so in many ways, I was figuring out the world a little bit and, and who I was in it. Uh, coupled that with this was the time of my life where I, I had quit church for a bit. Um, I had a, a rough, bumpy ending to my time in youth group, and towards the end of my uh, high school days and moving into college, I quit church for about four months. Um, and so during that time, uh, one of the things I didn't quit, mostly because I wasn't able to, I was in Bible school, and I, I didn't really want to, I didn't feel right to do this, I didn't quit getting into God's Word. I both wanted to, and I literally had to study it for school. And one of the things that I found was when I was getting into God's Word during that time of my life, the parts of Scripture that I had gone to so many times in the past for comfort and encouragement and, and to be challenged, they didn't, they didn't really speak to me anymore. I would read them and I liked them, but I was like, I, I don't know. It's just I'm not feeling it. Enter the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is in many ways, like I said, a very negative book. In, in Jewish uh, thinking and teaching, in, in their scriptures, they have three books of wisdom. They have Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And so for our purposes, I want to discuss Proverbs and Ecclesiastes a little bit. 
uh, to give you kind of the mood and the nature of what this book is. Um, so, so Proverbs is, is literature, it's wisdom that generally proves true. So it is wisdom that says, if you do this, or if you live in this way, generally this is what you will see happen. An example is Proverbs 12.11, which says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. So generally speaking, the, the proverb tells us that if one works hard and works his land well, then generally they will have bread and enough to eat. And generally speaking, the one who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. That proves true most of the time. Ecclesiastes asks the question, okay, well, what if someone works incredibly hard all their days and they still end up with not enough? In many ways, Ecclesiastes is the flip coin of Proverbs. It turns it over and it says, okay, but what if things aren't good here? What do we do when things do not turn out as we want or expect? The other trouble with Ecclesiastes is it is not a book about arriving at answers. The, the teacher, which we're going to meet here in just a second, uh, raises a lot of questions about a lot of really, really important topics in our lives and then answers almost none of them. Uh, it's a huge, largely negative thought experiment that this, that this author is going to run us through. Ecclesiastes is going to challenge what we think about the purpose of life, our work, how we spend our time, happiness, the meaning of existence, like what does it mean to be alive, how we have knowledge, and, and what is love. So just, you know, simple things that they're going to tackle. And in Christianity Today, I, I, before we get into Ecclesiastes, I want to note a concept that's kind of floating out there in, in the Christian world, and it's this idea of deconstruction. Um, deconstruction takes something of faith, and it kind of takes it apart, and it looks at it, and in many instances, that's where it stops. And I want to say a couple things about deconstruction. The first is, is we should not baby in the bathwater it. There, there is good aspects to deconstructing something. However, if we take something apart, if we deconstruct something, whether it's a belief or an idea, with no intention of ever putting it back together, it's kind of pointless. Like we're kind of wasting our time. The other thing is, is if we are going to take something apart and, and we do so from the position of, of a place of mistrust in God, we're starting from a bad point. And so deconstruction that, that seeks to put things back together afterwards and is done so from a, a position that testifies to the goodness of God is valuable. And, and it is this that Ecclesiastes is calling us to. He is going to take apart our notions of work and life and meaning and happiness and all these things. And by the end of the book, we're going to put them back together a little bit. Ecclesiastes is godly wisdom. If you've ever wondered, does any of this matter? Does my life matter? Does my work matter? Am I, am I doing anything productive? Is this helpful at all? Am I making a difference? Ecclesiastes 
is, is wisdom if you've ever had those questions. And so this is just kind of what it's about, an introduction to Ecclesiastes, a feeling for why I want to venture here. And so the first thing we need to look at is who wrote this thing. Um, so Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, tells us, these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. If you, if you do a, a Google search and you say, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Um, or if you look up in a, in a commentary, who wrote Ecclesiastes? A lot of the times, it lands on Solomon. Um, and, and that's fine. I want to note, nowhere in Ecclesiastes does it ever say Solomon wrote it. When we get to Proverbs, it has no problem talking about how Solomon wrote the Proverbs. Or at least most of them. But in Ecclesiastes, we're kind of given enough information where we will connect it to Solomon. We're told he's a preacher, he's the son of David, he's king in Jerusalem. But he never says it's Solomon. And this is on purpose. Again, it's uncertainty. It's probably Solomon. But it could be someone else. The speaker, however, is separate from this teacher. Notice he says, these are the words of the teacher. So whoever's the author, they're either writing in third person to, to make themselves the character telling the story, or they are somebody who is looking back and saying, I'm going to tell you the story of the teacher. The word teacher here is, is actually the Hebrew name for the book, and we're going to have a couple little mini Hebrew uh, lessons this morning. I know enough Hebrew to be dangerous. Um, but, but the teacher, the word teacher or preacher in your Bibles is Kohelet. And, and it literally means the one who gathers people in into a, a teaching or a preaching moment. It's someone who has gathered a group of people to teach them something. The teacher identifies themselves as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And it is not without intention that we get to Solomon. In fact, what we're going to find out later is they kind of want us to think about Solomon. And the reason they want us to think about Solomon is because whether it was Solomon or not, whether Solomon is the actual human being who put words to a page, we, they want us to have the emotion. Solomon was one of the wisest kings who ever lived. He had everything. He had access to it all. The author of the book kind of takes up the role of Solomon. He, he is this Solomon character, renowned for his wisdom, renowned for his wealth. And I kind of think of it as like one of those biographical museums where you go in and they've got the guy that's kind of dressed up like Abraham Lincoln and he's telling you the story about what it was like to live in Lincoln's cabin and doing all the things. And there might be a kid who goes, Mom, is that Abraham Lincoln? But everybody knows it's not. That's kind of the feeling of Ecclesiastes. People feel like it's Solomon, and it very well might have been, but we don't know. But whoever it is, they want to present themselves as this Solomon character who was wise and had wealth, and they had everything they could imagine. It also has this idea of kind of the, the aged um, grandfather kind of sharing wisdom from the good old days. I, I think of 
my, my grandfather, he used to share stories of um, the smelter in Anaconda in Montana. And he would talk a lot about going on strike. And, and as grandkids, we, we didn't understand what he was talking about. Uh, but looking back, I'm like, oh, there was wisdom in here. Um, he made choices that were wise. It's kind of that idea. It's, it's the, the elder who has kind of gathered in the people to kind of wax poetic about the days of old and the things they've reflected on to arrive at some sort of conclusion. That's kind of the, the mood and the attitude of the book. And so that's, that's this teacher. That's what we know of them. And so now we, we should turn our attention to the book to see what the teacher has to say. What, what are they going to begin with? In verse 2, the teacher says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be, cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. I just pray that as we turn our attention to this, this corner of scripture that is kind of, kind of dreary, I pray that, that your truth would be evident, that as we interact in, in what the teacher has for us, I pray that, that we would keep in mind your, your presence, God. Let your spirit move this morning. Helps to honor you with our time. In your name we pray. Amen. It says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is not the most uplifting way to start a conversation or any sort of teaching. If you go to the New Testament, you look at the letters of Peter and Paul, they've got a lot of blessings, greetings to the church. And the teacher here, he, he, he says, 
Vanity of vanities. In other words, of all the things that exist, he says it twice, of all the things that are out there, this pursuit of this wisdom and this thought experiment he's going to do, it's the most vain thing that he has found. And he says it twice, and then if we missed it, he says all is vanity. He says it three times. In, in the Hebrew culture, if you say it three times, it's assured. It's a rough start. We've killed the mood. To conclude that everything is vanity, it's a challenging thought. Um, some of your translations might have the word meaningless, 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 everything is meaningless. Um, and and that, that's, fine. that's a good translation. It doesn't help us much, though. Like, it still leaves us kind of down here. But we need to look at another Hebrew word to really get the, the feel of what the teacher is trying to say. Uh, and this Hebrew word that, that is translated vanity or meaningless is the word hevel. Hevel uh, it, is, it shows up about 70 times in the Old Testament, and almost 40 of those are in the small little book of Ecclesiastes. So over half of them are in this little book of wisdom. Vanity and meaninglessness are good starts to hevel. Uh, they, they get us the emotion and the feeling and the tension of, ah, it's not good. I know that whatever this word is, it's not a good thing. Um, but hevel can also be translated as fleeting, as smoke, as vapor or breath. It, it has the idea of something that is there one second and gone the next. If you've ever been outside on a cold day and you breathe out and you see your breath kind of just fade away, that's hevel. If you sit around the campfire and the smoke kind of lifts and as you see it kind of trickle off, that's hevel. You can reach out and try to grab it, but you're never going to, as hard as you try. It's this idea that something, you can see it, you know it's there, and you try to grasp at it, but you're never going to get it. And the more you grasp at it, it seems to swoosh it away and it's gone quicker. It's the idea also of something wasted. In the early pages of Genesis, we meet a character whose name has the same root word as Hevel. Uh, and almost as quickly as we meet this character, and, and we hear about his potential for good and what he could accomplish, his life is, is wasted at the hands of his brother Cain. Abel fills us with a sense of Hevel. It's the same word. Hevel has this sense that the more we try to understand it, the less we're able to. And the teacher concludes, everything is Hevel. It's all bad. It's all a waste. I, I told you it was a negative book. It's kind of a downer. The teacher goes on to elaborate. You might think, well, how, how did you get there? <laughs> that sounds pretty, okay. How did you get there? He goes on to tell us just how he did it, and the first thing he does is he looks at himself and a person's meaning and their purpose. He says in verse 3, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What does a man gain from all his work under the sun? 
before we look at this, the, the second through phrase. So the first phrase in Ecclesiastes that runs through the whole book is this idea of hevel. It's hevel. It's hevel. It says it over and over. But the other phrase that runs through the book is this idea of under the sun. And that phrase is not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. Under the sun. And it's this idea, under the sun, is used by the teacher to get us to this idea that all that exists is our life right here, right now. You get 60 to 80 years, and then you're done. That's life under the sun. And that's the thought experiment that the teacher sets up. What is life like if all that, is, that, if all that there is is 60 to 80 years and then you're done? It is a thought experiment that does not say there is no God, but it's a thought experiment that says, what if God doesn't matter anymore? What if we set God back here and we say all that's real is what's here today? That's it. That's the thought experiment that the teacher is going to do. What is life under the sun? I want to note again, he is not saying that there is no God. Rather, it's a position of what if God doesn't matter? Life under the sun neglects what God says about life not under the sun. And he looks at that, and in that thought experiment, in that system, he looks at work and he says, all our work is pointless. It's meaningless. It's hevel. You can work to the very end of your days, and apart from God, it's meaningless. Next, he turns his attention to natural phenomena to try to come up with some sort of purpose and meaning. In verse 5, he says, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. He looks at nature. And he's like, this is a waste of time. It just keeps going. And what's the end of this? He says, the sun comes up. It'll come up tomorrow. And it goes down. He looks at the wind and he goes, I can't figure out where it's coming from. But I know that it's going to be blowing in here tomorrow. He looks out at the sea, he watches the river flow into it, and he goes, why is it never full? And there's been folks who've looked at this, and I don't think it's wrong to do this, but they've looked at this and they said, yeah, this is a testimony of how God has made his creation. These cycles are a product of God. But remember, the teacher is operating in a thought experiment that says, yeah, but God doesn't matter. So if you take God out of that equation and you look at these cycles, you go, what is the point? Why? The sun comes up tomorrow. Okay. It's just another cycle. You get this feeling of a hamster on a wheel and you're doing this and if you stop, you're going to be the hamster that becomes part of the wheel. He says it's hevel. It's, it, it's, it's meaningless. Next, he turns his interest not to creating purpose or, or nature, but to Things that we can enjoy and discover and, and try to make sense of. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. Great start. A man cannot utter it. 
The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Everything is full of weariness. Weariness is not good. Um, that needs to be said. Weariness is this, uh, this kind of emotional and physical tired. It wears you out. It's tiresome finding and making sense of meaning. It's, it's a tough thing to do. And he looks out and he says, the eye looks out and it finds something. This, it, and then it looks away and you move on. And you're like, oh, I just want to go back and see the waterfall. I wish I could explain to my friend how great this owl in my backyard was. But it's gone. It's hevel. So too with what we hear, the, the newest song comes out from our favorite artist. We listen to the whole thing. And then a week later we're going, well, I wonder when they're going to put more out. Or, in the worst cases, sometimes those artists have moved on from us and we're never going to hear more from them. If we look to those things, the things that we can speak and hear and see, as for meaning, he says, it's hevel. It's a waste. It's meaningless. It does not satisfy. And then he looks out and concludes, there's nothing new under the sun. This is, this is one of the more popular phrases from Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. And when we look at that, we go, well, man, the internet's pretty interesting. Uh, and we all, most of us have like a half computer walking around in our pocket nowadays. That's pretty new. But at the end of the day, it's communication. It's people trying to communicate with each other. It's a new coat of paint on an old idea. There's nothing new under the sun. Even when we think we've found something new, he says it's existed in some capacity before us. In other words, we're not that clever. And then he notes, it only seems new because we have a tendency to forget. What is going to be, we're going to forget, and we've already forgot what's come before us. It's Hevel. And this is how the teacher introduces their thought experiment. That's the introduction to Ecclesiastes. We look at life. If we limit it strictly to our days under the sun, the teacher comes to the conclusion, it's meaningless, it's wasted, it's fleeting, and you're never going to get a grip on it. How are we doing? One might look at this life under the sun and conclude, okay, it's Hevel. So what does it matter? <laughs> he said it himself. It's meaningless. So what's the point? And the culture takes a few ways forward on this. Uh, it takes some steps. The, the first move forward, the culture says, is, is okay, well, if you look out and, and all that is on this earth is all that is there is going to be, then you have this life, enjoy it. Live it up. Have fun, make sure no one gets hurt, and if they do, make sure you don't get caught. The culture looks at meaning and says, the alternative is okay, well, you should be a good person. So that way people will maybe remember you, you can get your name on a building, you can make a difference in this world, 
or at the very minimum, you can leave this world better than when you got here. And those are kind of nice sentiments. Um, they're not bad. The problem is, is Ecclesiastes says, that's Hevel. Because one day everyone's going to forget it. The other response is to look out and say, okay, well, if it's, if it's Hevel, if it's meaningless, if it's vanity, none of this matters anyway. And this response, this kind of shrug and move forward, is very prominent in young people today. I work at a high school, uh, and there's, I feel like schools are always in the news uh, for one reason or another. And my, my mom asked me a few months back, she's like, what is going on? <laughs> and you can, you can put your pin in any number of reasons of what is going on. Everybody's got a different answer to that. But when it comes to many students, not all, but many students, there is a, a feeling and an attitude and this emotion of apathy. It doesn't matter. I don't care. Okay, well, you're kicked out of school. Okay, I don't care. What if your parents, what are they? I don't care. Apathy. It doesn't matter. It's Hevel. And so now that the teacher and, and I have killed the mood for the morning, um, I promised Michael Wall I would this week, so I did. Um, he continues on into the, the first formal thought experiment of the book. He's introduced it, and now he's going to conduct the first one in verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In light of the seemingly meaningless nature of life, and the fleeting nature of things, the teacher says, you know what, I'm going to attempt to seek out wisdom under the sun. And he seeks it out with all of his, his wealth and his life experiences, and he concludes, it's Hevel. Again, this is trying to evoke the, the Solomon, he had it all. He was the, one of the wisest kings who ever lived. He had riches. If he wanted it, he had it. If there was an experience you could go out and buy, he could go out and buy it. And here he's kind of saying he did it. <laughs> he went out and tried it all. He studied it all. He studied wisdom. He studied folly. And he gets to the end and he goes, you know what? It's like grasping the wind. It all fades away. He says, the person who seeks wisdom finds vexation in this life. And the more you know, the more you know how bad things are. The things that are crooked and lacking in this life under the sun never seem to be made straight or be full. 
And we discussed the culture's response to this, or at least a couple of them. But what about us? Because we can, we can talk out towards the culture, but what about us? What is our response? And I want to direct our attention to the end of verse 13, because I, I think this idea is the key. It's, it's, there's a number of times in Ecclesiastes where we're down here and we're, we're feeling pretty low, and then he goes, he peeks behind the curtain and then he closes it almost immediately. And, and the end of verse 13 is the first time he does this. He goes, whoop, gives us a quick look and then shuts it. And he says, he says, this process of seeking out all that's done under heaven, he says it's an unhappy business. It does not a happy thing to do. It's difficult, it's hard, it takes time, and at the end of it, you might feel like you wasted your life. And we'll say, well, for goodness sakes, Hunter, we get it. It's heaven. We, we understand. Move on. But I want to note where this comes from, where he says it comes from. Because in verse 13, he says it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He says it comes from God. We don't often think of God giving us unhappy businesses to deal with. When we look at this life, and if we operate in a system that says all that is real and all that matters is the 60 to 80 days we get on this earth under the sun, if we look at that and we try to create meaning, he says it's unhappy. It's an unhappy thing to try to do. And then he says that feeling is from God. And he doesn't in any way conclude that God doesn't exist. He knows God exists. But he concludes that if God exists, and we try to make meaning only in this life, only in our days under the sun, then we're going to be left with some pretty unhappy and pretty empty feelings. We're going to be left with Hevel. And he says that God put that in us. God made us to have purpose and meaning with God. And when we try to put God back here and create that apart from God, he says it's an unhappy business and that God gave us that sense. We can try to finagle it and say, well, maybe, you know, it's poetry. Maybe he's waxing poetic and trying to get the emotion across. And, and maybe, but still, that, it's not often that we hear this idea of, you know, God gave us an unhappy business. God gives us this sense that life under the sun is hevel and vain and meaningless and a waste and fleeting apart from God because the teacher knows and he comes to understand that there isn't purpose under the sun apart from God. We can try to create it. We can even ride the wave of feeling it for some time, but at the end of the day, we die the next generation comes along, and we are forgotten. There is hevel here on earth. It's bad news under the sun. And the gospel in Ecclesiastes is that our God dwells above the earth. Our God is over the sun. And every now and then we get these peaks behind the curtain at this God in Ecclesiastes. And if we try to replace life under the sun with meaning, it's hevel. Like we're, trying to, we're spinning our wheels. But if we remember that we have a life after the sun, above the sun, we have a hope 
of a coming kingdom. We can cling to the hope of a God above the sun, an eternity, a kingdom. That's what Jesus revealed. That's what he paid for. We cling to the hope of a God above the sun. There's hevel here, but the gospel, we, we have the luxury of living on this side of Jesus. When, when the teacher was giving his thought experiment, I think he knew God had a plan, but I didn't think he knew what that plan was in every way. He had this sense that there's something more out there, but what is it? And we have the luxury of living on this side of Jesus, looking back and being able to go, man, it's this kingdom. It's, it's the Savior. I would, I would raise one um, argument with the teacher. He says there's nothing new under the sun. And I think when he wrote that, that was true. But one, new, one very new thing did happen. Jesus uh, did, did a first time for everything, and he, he came down and he said, you know what, I'm actually going to become a part of this mess. I'm going to enter into the hevel that is on earth, the frustration, the fleetingness. I'm going to become able to die for the purpose of saving us. So that way we might have life above the sun. That we might get away from hevel. He died so that we could have hope of a new life, of this coming kingdom. In Jesus, Hevel can be undone. He can give meaning. He can give purpose. He can give sense. And it's this Jesus that we remember when we take communion.